Well, grab your Bibles, open them to Acts 17. Make sure you're checking what I'm saying. <laughs> Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we don't want to hear what I have to say. We don't want to hear what Mark and Catherine have to say. We want to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Uh, please open our eyes, open our hearts and our minds uh, to hear you speak, that we might live for Jesus. Amen. Uh, it's never been easy, I don't know about you, it's never been easy to talk to your friends about Jesus. I don't find it easy. But it seems like in the last few years it's getting more and more difficult and tricky. Government legislation seems to be heading in the direction that may one day make it illegal for us to talk about our faith. It's certainly true that in the media and in social media uh, they increasingly see it as unacceptable for Christians to be sharing what the Bible teaches about life, about sin, about morality, about judgment. I guess the temptation as Christians is that we just stay quiet. But I want to suggest that Paul and Silas, uh, it was just as politically incorrect for them to talk about Jesus as it is today. And they had more grounds, let's be honest, to be scared about the consequences than we do, but they spoke anyway. There are a number of lessons that we can learn from them as we follow them today into the city of Thessalonica. We can learn that we need to speak with courage, we need to speak with clarity, with commitment and creativity. And lastly, from the Bereans, we need to confirm what we learn. So firstly, if we're going to be effective talking about our faith, talking about Jesus, we need to be more daring. We need to be courageous. Just imagine for a moment that you're Paul or Silas. Uh, we saw last week how they'd been beaten and falsely accused and imprisoned back in Philippi because of the gospel. They bear the scars to prove that preaching about Jesus isn't popular. Now, some occupations have trouble getting life insurance, apparently. If you're a movie stuntman, if you're a Formula One racing car driver, well, I want to reckon probably being a first century missionary, you would probably have trouble getting uh, insurance as well. It's a dangerous job. Uh, it seems like these guys may as well be painting a giant red target on their forehead. Uh, but at the start of chapter 17, Paul and Silas and Timothy they leave Philippi and they head for Thessalonica. They hobble through Amphipolis and Apollonia and probably a few other names we have trouble pronouncing and they're battered and they're bruised. And they're getting closer to Thessalonica. It's a city of 200,000 people. And there's every chance they're going to face exactly the same response there as they had before. Now, if it was you, you'd be tempted to modify your strategy, wouldn't you? To be come up with a to lower the risk. <laughs> you'd come up with a different approach. You'd maybe even try a different job. I would, but I wonder if we sometimes think that Paul and Silas weren't thinking about these things too. Uh, I think we sometimes think they just weren't scared, but that's not the case. 
I want you to listen to what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica later that same year, two or three months after he'd been and then left. Listen to what he said. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul says to them, Brothers, you know that our visit to you was not a failure. We'd previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. Remember, we saw that. We know that as well. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. In spite of everything that the Thessalonian city threw at them, they still believed enough uh, to open their mouth. They dared to speak. Uh, now, what do you do when you've been insulted for your faith? The temptation is to say, well, I'm not going to go there again. I I'll pull back into my shell. I don't like conflict. I tried telling my friends I was a Christian and they laughed at me, so I'm just not going to put myself out there again. But Paul says, with God's help, we dared to do it all over again. We're in prison in Philippi, but we still did it in Thessalonica. He's even more honest in 1 Corinthians when he talks about how he went to the church, uh, to the city of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. This was no Superman who was fearless. This was a normal guy who in weakness and fear and with much trembling, he says, my message was not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's courage, isn't it? Courage is not being fearless. Courage is being scared of something, but doing it anyway. That's courage. And because Paul dared to speak the gospel, God's Spirit worked through him and people believed. Have you ever tried being a daring Christian? That's when you'll know God's help. You stay comfortable and you're rarely going to see God's help. You be daring, that's when you can begin to see God working through you. Putting yourself into scary situations is the sort of faith God loves to bless. If you've had a hard time uh, previously, do it again. If you've never had the guts to say anything because you're afraid you'll get a hard time, then do it anyway. And just trust God to do something with it. Well, let's see what happens when Paul and Silas do that again as they dare to speak about Jesus. Well, verse 2, they arrive. There's a Jewish synagogue there. And where there's a synagogue, Paul preaches there. Verse 2, that's his strategy. Tell the Jews first and then everybody else. And so look at what he does, verses 2 and 3. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, I said there are four lessons we can learn from Paul and Silas. Courage was the first one. The others all start with C. It took me quite a while, but I came up with them. Clarity, commitment, and creativity, and we find them all here in verses 2 and 3. First, we need to be clear about what we say so we can share our faith in a way that makes sense for people. Most people assume that there's a huge gap between things of faith and things of reason, that you can't be both. You can't be a person who trusts and someone who thinks. 
Many people seem to think it's not possible to have a faith that also stands up to intellectual, historical, logical scrutiny. But that's not Christianity. If you have a look at Paul in action here, you'll see what I mean. The three words uh, tell you what Paul's doing in the synagogue, and maybe it's a bit surprising to you. He's working hard to convince people. He's pointing them to the facts. He's not talking about his own feelings or his experiences or his opinions. He's dealing with the historical details about Jesus' life. And he's pointing to the primary documents, to the Jewish scriptures and seeing what they say. Paul reasons from the scriptures. He explains and he proves that the Christ, the predicted Messiah, would suffer and rise from the dead. He's pulling out the scriptures and he's pointing people to the verses. He's explaining what they mean and what the promises will look like. Perhaps he goes to a passage like Isaiah 53 and he talks about the Messiah, the servant, who will be wounded for our transgressions, who will be punished not for his own sins but for the sins of others. The suffering and dying Messiah. And he says to the, the synagogue, Think about this. For hundreds of years, that's what the scriptures have said the Messiah will be like. He'll suffer and die. And then perhaps he points them to a passage like Psalm 16, a psalm that talks about the Messiah, that says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You won't abandon him to the grave. There it is in black and white. The Messiah, when he comes, will suffer but he won't be left by God abandoned to the grave, he will live on. It's right there in black and white. Paul's doing something like what police do with an identikit picture. Uh, you've seen the robbery, tell me what the guy is like. Well, he's got brown hair, great brown hair. He had blue eyes, great blue eyes. He had this wide nose and he had glasses, great, and you put them on the picture. And you look for someone who fits that description. And so that's Paul's identikit. When you look for the Messiah, look for someone who suffers and then who rises from the dead. Now this is new thinking because when the Jews thought about who their Messiah was, they weren't thinking of someone like this who would suffer and rise from the dead. But here's Paul proving it from the scriptures. And here's the kicker. Uh, here's the, the sting in the tail. Paul says, here's what your picture looks like for what this Messiah guy looks like. Now I want you to compare this picture to this guy I've been talking to you about, Jesus. At the end of verse 3, he says, this Jesus, this one I'm proclaiming to you, that's what he's done. He's suffered, he's died, he's risen from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you, he's the Christ. Now that word for proving, it, it sort of uh, literally means something like to place alongside almost like to compare. Here, here are the scripture promises. Here's the person of Jesus. Now compare the two, see if they fit. Jesus is the one. Paul is clear, firstly. Secondly, he's committed. He's there three Sabbaths in a row. It's his preaching series. My guess he was probably there during the week to catch up with anyone who had questions as well. He's committed but he's also creative. 
there are different approaches for different types of people. He reasons, he explains, he proves. Different objections and different obstacles need different approaches. People think in different ways. Uh, people come with different worldviews and different preconceptions. They need different illustrations uh, to apply your teaching in different ways. Paul has been courageous and clear and committed and creative. Paul works hard and as he does, God's spirit works through him. Verse four, we're told some of the Jews are persuaded. They join Paul and Silas, a large number of God-fearing Greeks and prominent women as well. Paul convinces them. Uh, friends, we can't expect people to be persuaded to follow Jesus if we can't give them a clear argument for why they should. If we don't have the courage to speak, we can't expect people to be convinced. If we're not committed enough to take time patiently with people. The reality is it probably won't happen the first time we talk to them about Jesus especially more and more these days, as people have no Christian background at all, be willing to, to, to book in for the long haul. Uh, weeks, months, years, decades. Be committed. Uh, over that time, we need to be creative, to adapt our message for the situation the person is in, to look for different opportunities, uh, for different uh, times God gives us uh, a little opening to say something or to live out a certain truth. Now, if we do all of those things, if we keep speaking the truth in love, the barriers can come down. People can be convinced as they were with Paul and Silas. Speaking of whom, let's get back to what happens next. Uh, it's not all good news. It's a familiar story, verse 5. There's other Jews. They burn with jealousy. They stir up a riot. They storm Jason's house where Paul and Silas had been staying. I think it's likely the brothers hid them somewhere because they bring them out the next day. Uh, but they can't find Paul and Silas at Jason's house and so they, they grab Jason instead. Uh, who doesn't betray them. He, he just sort of wears whatever's coming his way. Uh, they grab some of the other brothers as well. They drag them before the city officials and they lay charges against them. These men who've caused trouble all over the world, which is interesting, isn't it? Uh, but they've now come here and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king called Jesus. Now, as history unfolds, this charge of treason, it's one that's going to send countless Christians to their death, uh, to their deaths. But this, this, uh, this crime of treason, of loyalty to another king, bowing to another authority, one which is higher than Caesar, that's the accusation. Now, at least part of that's true, isn't it? Maybe not the defying Caesar's decrees bit, but serving a higher king, that is true of Christians. We serve a king who demands a higher loyalty, a greater loyalty than the one that we have to our job or to the government. 
or sometimes even to our families. And sometimes, as a Christian, we may have to make a choice to follow the king who died for us, to the, the king who rules the universe, or to stay loyal to something else. It'll take guts to follow King Jesus. It'll take courage. If you're serious about bowing to King Jesus, you will face opposition. We are going in a different direction to the rest of the world. We've got different values and priorities and loyalties. We're loyal to a different king. Well, verse 8, the crowd here that these Christians are loyal to another king and they're furious. Verse 9, the city officials don't know what to do, so they put Jason and the other brothers on a bond. Don't make any more trouble like this or you'll lose your money. And then they let them go. Uh, verse 10, next morning when things have calmed down, <laughs> the brothers bring Paul and Silas out of hiding. It seems that's the way I'm reading it. And they send them off to the town of Berea, a bit further west, uh, perhaps to lie low for a little while, but it certainly doesn't turn out that way. <laughs> Verse 10, they go straight to the Berean synagogue. Once again, they're daring to proclaim Jesus, despite the risk. Uh, but this time, the reaction is completely different. And it seems to me Luke wants us to compare these two towns, uh, to compare the synagogue in Thessalonica and the synagogue in Berea. Uh, the contrast is stark, isn't it? These guys are terrific. Verse 11, we're told the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Now, were they just nicer guys? Well, no, it's not to do with their, their personality at all. But it's not because they take everything on board and just believe it without, uh, without any doubt. Look at verse 11. They received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They want to confirm it. Now notice how both the speaker and the hearer are using their brains. On the one hand, Paul is using all of his intellectual skills to explain and convince the Bereans with his creativity and his clarity. And on the other hand, you've got the Bereans. They're using their brains to investigate, to check, to confirm what Paul's saying. It's not an insult uh, to someone to check that what they're saying is true, especially something as important as this, to death and judgment and eternal life, it's actually a compliment to say, let me go and check that. It's actually a compliment because you're saying what they're telling you is important enough to check. Where to be like the Bereans, aren't we? Uh, don't just accept teaching uncritically. Don't just accept my teaching uncritically. Check it. I love to see your eyes down checking your Bibles. Don't just believe it, test it. Be prepared to give your faith a good shake. Go back to the Bible, ask your tough questions. Don't just hide the tough questions. Read some books, listen to some podcasts, ask some people you trust. Confirm what you believe by doing some homework. It's okay to doubt. God is big enough for your questions. 
This passage is telling us that people who are prepared to ask genuine questions, they're called noble. That's a good thing. A questioning mind is a friend. Now that's one of the biggest differences between a genuine Christian church and a sect. You may get Jehovah's Witnesses coming to the door. You may know people who've been caught up in some other sort of Christian sect. But the difference is the real thing has nothing to fear from questions and investigation. Whatever we say, whatever we believe as Christians, we're open for inspection about. You have to check things for yourself. You have to be confident that they're true. And here's what else that does. It's not just for your benefit. It's not just to make you feel better. It's the way you can actually end up with answers to share with someone else. Answers that you're confident about. It's actually the way to end up with answers that you're motivated to share as well. If you only know something because someone else told you or because you read it in a book, it's all a bit theoretical. It doesn't really mean that much to you. But if you've discovered these truths for yourself and you know them for real, then they, they're more likely to excite you and you're more likely to want to share them if you've confirmed them for yourself. And when you do share, something else happens. You're, you're adding your personal experience to the reality of your testimony. When you step out in boldness, when you do something you're not quite sure that you can cope with, when you stretch your faith, God comes through. God keeps his promises. God shows his power. That's when you can expect to see your own faith grow. It's like exercise. You, you use your muscles and they'll adapt. Use your faith and it'll adapt, it'll grow. Stretch your faith and you'll see your love for Jesus deepening. You'll see your witness for him developing and growing more fruit. And when we can all start to do that, when we all begin to push our boundaries of comfort and we begin to speak with courage and clarity and creativity and commitment, when we begin to speak the truth that we've confirmed for ourselves, that's when we can begin to expect to see God building his church and to use us to do it. May that be so. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the example of Paul and Silas. On the one hand, we thank you for their courage, but at the same time, we, uh, we thank you that they were just ordinary men uh, who spoke with fear and trembling. Uh, but we thank you that in their weakness, in their trust of you, uh, you chose to use them. And we pray that you might do the same for us. Uh, we pray that in our weakness, we would look to you for independence and that you might bless that and produce fruit uh, give us words to speak of Jesus which are powerful uh, so that our friends and our families and our workmates might hear about Jesus and that you would work to open their eyes, that they would trust him. And we pray that you would build your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.